Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Mormon Stories Podcast. I am your host, John DeLynn. It's September 7th, 2022, and we are uh, continuing our epic series from uh, Mike of LDS Discussions, focusing in as balanced of a way as we can on Mormon truth claims. Uh, the topic for today is an introduction and timeline uh, of or to Mormon polygamy. And what this is going to be kicking off is a multi-part series on Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy, and today is kind of an overview. Uh, I just want to take 20 seconds to remind you all that this series uh, from LDS Discussions, number one, the website is ldsdiscussions.com, where you can read so many essays and so much good content focusing on... Um, thoughtful, balanced, evidence-based responses to Mormon truth claims to help you um, and all of us understand the the basis for um, for understanding Mormonism and its history better. We are something like 23, 24 episodes in. These episodes build on each other. And so we encourage you to start at the beginning if you're finding this for the first time. Watch the other 22, 23 episodes and then come back to this one you'll have a much better foundation to understand it. Um, you can you can find this, even though this podcast is released as part of the Mormon Stories podcast series, you um, on on the Mormon Stories podcast YouTube channel and in, um, in the podcast stream. You can also, we've also shared these LDS discussions episodes in isolation um, on Spotify, both in video and audio format, uh, also on a YouTube playlist, um, for LDS discussions under the Mormon Stories podcast uh, YouTube channel. And also you can find the LDS discussions podcast in isolation wherever you get your podcasts. So we want to encourage you to do that. And um, without any further ado, let's bring on Mike. Hey, Mike. Hey, everybody. How's it going? You ready to talk polygamy? Yeah. You know what? This one's going to be um, kind of like we talked about with the race and the priesthood kind of episodes. These are tough. And I know... Um, these are ones that still, for what, you know, for different reasons, get me, um, it, it, you know, still kind of bother me in ways that maybe the other historical stuff doesn't. So we're going to do our best to, um, present the data as we have it. And obviously, as we've said with the other episodes, people are going to do with it what they want. And, um, we'll reference a lot of good resources as we go. And hopefully it gives everybody at least a good overview of the different areas of polygamy, um, not just how it started, um, but also as we get to the end of this kind of group of episodes, how it impacts the church today and what the implications are because of the fact that it's still doctrine. And, um, you know, we'll just, we'll go through it as gently as we can without trying to sugarcoat it. And uh, hopefully um, if you're listening and you're a believing member, um, it's going to be difficult because there are a lot of things that are going to come up that you probably haven't heard um, at the same time. Um, it, it's going to be okay because it, there's a lot of stuff I think that will go over that kind of explains um, how you can know about these things and, and kind of how to, um, incorporate them into what we've been talking about in the previous episodes. And, um, you know, it, it gets better. It's just, it, these episodes get, get a little rough and, uh, we'll do our best. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll say one, once upon a time, Lindsay Anson Park and I were, um, on, on a trip to Europe and she made this point that you can't understand Mormonism without understanding polygamy. And it's, it's her view that, you know, everything from the temple ceremony to garments to, uh, 
you know, even the way that the church sometimes handles reports of sexual abuse today, that there are tie-ins in almost every aspect of Mormonism somehow back to polygamy. And so uh, I'll just agree with you that it's so fundamental. Um, before we jump in, Mike, I just uh, want to say a couple of quick things. Number one is I have a dear friend or a good friend named Brian who's actually been heavily involved in Mormon history over the years. And something he told me, he corrected me on a thing. And uh, afterwards I said, Brian, man, you should be doing this podcast, not <laughs> me. And what he said was he really liked our dynamic because when academics are just talking, sometimes it's harder for people to understand. But when there's kind of like this teacher learner model where kind of Mike's the teacher and John's the learner, um, sometimes for some people it makes it more engaging. I know that there are some of our viewers and listeners that just want to hear Mike and they just want to hear the facts, but there's a large number of viewers and listeners that have also said that they appreciate our exchanges and they appreciate my restatements. So there's, there's literally no way to create a podcast that makes everybody happy. So I'm just going to acknowledge we're not going to make everybody happy, but the position I'm going to try and take is just as the learner. And I kind of like this idea of like, a convert to Mormonism teaches a sixth generation <laughs> uh, lifelong Mormon about his own religion. There's something uh, a little bit clever and profound about the fact that you know more about Mormonism than me, Mike, and you were a convert, an adult convert at that. <laughs> well, and, well, the funny thing is, like, you know, I, I don't even think about it that way because I think for me, the a lot of the resources I'm pulling from could run circles around me all day long. And so for me, this is this whole project was about trying to get below the surface of kind of those common arguments you hear um, from both like from a critical standpoint um, and then also from an apologetic standpoint, because a lot of the, fo a lot of the focus on, on what you see in the battle, especially online, but even when the church holds face to face events is those topics you see in the CES letter. Those are the ones that everyone's starting to know about, whether it's polygamy, first vision, um, priesthood, restoration, race, and the priesthood. And so this was about, trying to get below that surface. So for me, I am relying heavily on those historians that can run circles around me. And I've referenced them throughout. And in these next five episodes, like Lindsay Hanson Park's work has been massive. And I, I obviously would recommend anyone who's listening to this um, to check out her Year of Polygamy series because that goes through every single um, one of the wives of Joseph Smith. And it does it, she does it in a way that I would argue is as gentle and comforting as you can get. She does not make fun of it. She doesn't, um, she, she doesn't use a lot of like loaded language. She's very calm. And I think she presents it in as straightforward a way as you can. And I'm not going to speak for her in any way, but I think one of the cool things for me listening to her series was, I think you could kind of tell as her series went on that it became more and more difficult for her to um, kind of like, allow for polygamy maybe to not be from God, but also for Joseph Smith to be a prophet. And I can't speak to where she is with her spiritual journey any, you know, at all, but I, I do feel like it's really cool because you could tell as she's doing the series, at least from my perspective, um, that the more she got into it, I think the more it weighed on her. And I think that's how it was for me too, where it's with the church, they always want to give you apologetics to keep you from getting that second or third or fourth layer deep. But that's where you start to really get to the point where you can find the patterns, where you can find that these problems are not isolated. And that's what we've tried to do in this series is to show that these are not isolated problems. And so to what you were saying earlier, I don't feel like I'm an academic, but I do feel like um, one of the things we're doing that's really cool is me kind of trying to synthesize this information and then presenting it to you 
And then when there's areas either you haven't heard of, or maybe you've heard of them differently, or if there's something that you've heard of that I don't have in the presentation that we can kind of work into it to show that, yeah, there's this too. And, and I think that's why um, there's a lot more value in having you there than just me talking, because being able to get that feedback from you to either know to expand on something or to tie it back to something else, I think is huge. And, and when someone's listening or watching, I think for them to be able to see that would be a lot more valuable than just going to like LDSdiscussions.com and reading it because that is much more dry and it doesn't have the benefit of having someone else there to say, hey, can you ex explain this a little better or can doesn't that tie into this or what about this? And and I think those are where you get a lot more um, beneficial conversations uh, to these topics. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Uh, so that's going to be my posture. I'm learner. You're master teacher. <laughs> And uh, I say that tongue in cheek, but uh, no, I know. You, you do know a lot. Okay. And I'm just, I'm just going to very quickly, I, I, at least as far as what I've said, there's at least uh, a couple things that some of our viewers and listeners have expressed concern over. And I'm just going to own a couple things, misstatements I made. I'm totally comfortable saying that I don't know everything and that sometimes I mess up and make mistakes. And two mistakes that I made, I think I indicated in a past episode that the word, this is during the the priesthood restoration episode, I think. I think I indicated that the word Melchizedek doesn't show up anywhere in the Book of Mormon. And that's that. if I gave that impression, that's actually wrong. The word Melchizedek does appear in the Book of Mormon. I believe it's in Alma. Um, yeah, Alma 13. And, and I believe that it talks about, even mentions high priesthood. And yeah. all I'm going to say there is what I, what I think I meant to say was that the, the priesthood that, that we have now, which is Melchizedek priesthood, is a higher priesthood with, with elder and high priest, and then Aaronic priesthood, which is a lower priesthood with deacon teacher. You know, that level of structure doesn't appear. And I think it's even a stretch to say that having the character Melchizedek, which is really just a Bible reference, to have the character Melchizedek and to say that just referring to a generic high priesthood in some way is is really a statement of of how Joseph's priesthood ends up evolving by 1835, I think I was trying to say that's a stretch. But I, I made a misstatement, so I'm going to own that. Okay, and Mike, you you can you can add to that if you want, or we can just yeah, leave, I think, it, leave it. And, and the problem is we're we're so we're recording a lot of these episodes a little bit in advance, so that one just aired. So. We've gotten some feedback on that, and we I need to go back and listen to the episode. But I That's think fine. what would happen was we had a slide. We were going through the Fair Mormon response on the priesthood restoration, and they had mentioned that Alma 13 shows that Joseph Smith was was aware of the Melchizedek priesthood and was um, already, you know, had that idea in his head. And what I believe we where we screwed up is I was saying I think I need to listen to it, but I think we were saying that the the Melchizedek priesthood isn't in the Book of Mormon, and what we're saying is. Alma 13 is pulling from Hebrews 7. It's pulling from um, Hebrews chapter 7, and that's where um, the ideas of Melchizedek come in, where you know he paid tithes to Abraham. And uh, we had talked about this a lot during the episode, but Melchizedek, the name is king of righteousness, right? So it's not necessarily a person. And it's Hebrews 7 is kind of saying that Jesus has this priesthood of like the king of righteousness, which means that we don't because Jesus doesn't need a priesthood like we would have, you know? And so I think what happened was when we got to that slide, I was kind of conflating the fact that there's no development of the Melchizedek priesthood as the church has it in the Book of Mormon. 
but there are references to Melchizedek in Alma 13 because he's pulling from Hebrew 7 at that time. And so it's, yeah, that's a little bit where apologists will say, of course he was thinking about it. It's in the Book of Mormon. But then you'd also say, that's where he's pulling from Hebrew 7. This is not unique content to the Book of Mormon. And furthermore, as we talked about in the episode a lot, um, the fact is if he was truly thinking about the Melchizedek priesthood when the Book of Mormon was written, he would not have been ordained to the high priesthood two years later. It would have happened as the church now claims it does. But that being said, I think we did kind of conflate those two things when we were doing that slide. And so it came off as if we were saying there is no mention of Melchizedek in the Book of Mormon. And I, so we were wrong on that um, because I think we were conflating the fact that we were saying he's pulling from Hebrews 7 there and that he's not developing the Melchizedek priesthood in the Book of Mormon as it appears in the church today in any way. And so we were kind of wrong because we, I think we were at that point, we were a couple hours in, and I think we were kind of like almost relying on our earlier stuff but then it came off wrong. So for that, I wish I'd worded it better because it was on the slide. I just kind of screwed up when I was talking about it. Okay. Is there any other correction we need to make that comes to your mind right now? Because I'm I'm happy to for this to be a dialogue. And so I'm not embarrassed or ashamed when we make a mistake. We'll own it. We'll have a conversation. And that'll be just part of the fun of the series. Is there anything else that comes to mind, uh, a criticism that we've received of something we got wrong? That was the big one so okay. far. We, you know, you get some comments on like YouTube and stuff. And they're not ones where I, I, I mean, like I don't, I usually try to reply um, when I see them or if someone points them out to me um, to explain where I'm coming from. So I, I if, but if someone does have them email them to us, um, it's a lot easier sometimes to get them by email and, and then we can go through it. If, if you know, because if, if we screw up, we want to yeah. um, note that. And like in this episode today, there's some areas where I was making changes because I was trying to talk to some people to clarify some things and it, it was helpful because there were some things where I, it gave me some new data that I didn't have before. Um, so we obviously want to get it right. And we're happy to go back and correct it, even though it might be a few episodes later, just because of the way we're recording them. But we absolutely will um, own up to it because the whole point of this series is to get the info out there and to do it in the most straightforward way we can. So if we get it wrong, we want to correct it. Yeah. And we also want to model the behavior that we want to see in institutions, which is when you make yep. a mistake, you own up to it, you admit it, you, yep. you repent. And you forsake the sin, and you confess, and then you try not to yeah. do it again. All right, yeah. so today, let's jump in uh, to the topic at hand. Let's talk about polygamy. Yeah, so this is going to be, we think it's going to be a five-episode series, you know, five-episodes group within the series, and um, we want to cover not just the accounts of polygamy, but where it began, um, how Joseph Smith was teaching about it in his proposals, and what the impacts are today because of the fact that DNC 132 is still doctrine. And so there's this quote, and I have no idea where it started. I don't know if it was from someone famous, but I saw it once. And I thought it was really good, especially for polygamy. It says, studying history will sometimes disturb you. Studying history will sometimes upset you. Studying history will sometimes make you furious. If studying history always makes you feel proud and happy, you probably aren't studying history. Mm. And I love that quote because for Mormon history, we often are given this super clean uh, presentation of Joseph Smith, whether it's the first vision, the priesthood restoration, the Book of Mormon translation with the having of sitting at the table with the gold plates. And with polygamy, um, as a convert, I only knew about polygamy because people made jokes about Utah and polygamy. So I was a little aware that I would hear like on a sitcom or something. And when I talked about it or when I asked about it, uh, it was always told that it was, it was kind of modeled almost like, yeah, it was more of a Brigham Young thing. Um, and, and um, at the time there was no real documentation when I joined, and this is the late nineties um, that really indicated that Joseph Smith 
had wives. When you talk about like the 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 manuals you're going to see in the church building on a Sunday, they didn't really talk about it. Even the manual on Brigham Brigham Young, I believe, had a reference to Brigham Young's wife. So. Um, this versus, is one of those versus, things, versus wives, right? Versus what, 55 wives or whatever he had. Yeah. So um, one of the things about studying church history is it's going to make you really upset. If you're a believer, um, it's going to make you upset, even if you end up staying in the church, even if you end up saying, I'm okay with it. If it doesn't make you upset, if it doesn't make you uncomfortable, um, then you're not really studying history. You're studying what the church wants you to study or you're studying a, a, a watered-down history that is so... Uh, detached from from the historic reality that you're not getting the full picture. And, and I often hear people say um, that I've had this happen a lot where they'll come to me with, with they'll, usually it's they'll say you're wrong about something. And I'll say, can you read this? Because this is where I'm coming from. They'll say, no, this stuff makes me too uncomfortable. And I always want to say, get uncomfortable. Because if you are not willing to get uncomfortable, you are never, ever going to get to the bottom of anything. Because if you truly believe in something, you're, you're not going to get into it. Yeah. And, um, yep. and so this stuff is going to upset you as a believer. And to be honest, this stuff upsets me today as someone who I'm still a member, but I'm not a believer. And, um, and so it's going to be difficult to go through these episodes, but we're just trying to point out right off the yeah. top. Right. You, if you want to get to the full picture, it's going to be upsetting. We'll get through it together. It won't be that bad. Um, and, and I think we're all better off. Even if you stay in the church, you're better off knowing this stuff because if you have children that you're going to send off on a mission, they should know these things before they go so that they can make the most yeah, informed right. decision they can if they want to spend two years of their life, you know, uh, proselytizing for this church. Because a lot of the times, and we've talked about this on previous episodes, I had um, two missionaries that came over here after I started doing my deep dive and I became a ward project. And so they came over and it was so funny because like, oh, we just happened to be in the area. And it's like, no, you weren't. But um, I was talking with them and I said, listen, I will talk to you guys as long as you want. I said, but if you want to talk to me about why I should reconsider the church, you have to listen to what I have to say. And I told him, I will only talk to you about stuff that's on the church's website. I will not give you anything else, only off the church's website. And they were so uncomfortable with just the stuff I was talking about off the church's website. They did not know yeah. almost anything. And this was three and a half years ago, four years ago. So yep. the point is, if everyone needs to know this stuff, what you do with it, that's up to you. But yeah. everyone needs to know this stuff. Make, makes sense. Yeah. And I'll just add one thing. Polygamy, you know, that 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 quote, if I'm trying to be fair, that quote about history cuts both ways because yep. if you're a, if you are mad at the church and you hate polygamy and you're studying history, you may find journal entries of people who participated in polygamy and say they loved it. So yep. you, you know, you don't have to comment on this, but I'm just saying that can cut both ways, including sometimes reading things that are disturbing to you if you've lost your faith. So Yeah, and and, uh, and to that point, this is actually, you, you're making a great point that I want. We talk a lot in our episodes about mm -hmm. apologetics, right? And so there are times where we'll talk about some of the apologists in the church who are trying, I think, their best to make changes from the inside, to find, to change kind of the, the way the church frames things. So whether it's Richard Bushman or, um, you know, Patrick Mason uh, Terrell Givens, and, and sometimes you get frustrated because you read it and you're just like, come on. But at the same time, the fact that I can read their stuff, and even though it does make me uncomfortable sometimes, I'm like, how can you, you know, make spin this into a good thing? I think it's a good thing for me to read it because getting their perspective has helped me a lot in, in talking about this stuff. Getting the perspective of Richard Bushman or I'm trying to think, Dan McClellan, um, he does a lot of great videos. Getting some of his perspectives 
have been so helpful, even though sometimes I'm like, oh, that's so frustrating. So it does cut both ways. And if you are a critic, there is a lot of value in finding somebody that you disagree with, but that can present it in a way that's respectful and that at least backs up what they're saying, whether or not you agree with it, because even if it makes you uncomfortable, it is so helpful to have the perspectives of both sides. Yeah. Yeah. I, I interviewed Patrick Mason, who's probably the preeminent Mormon scholar right now in the Mormon studies field. And I asked him about polygamy yesterday and he's just like, I don't believe it. And I, I believe that scripture can be wrong. And so for me, DNC 132, at least a good chunk of it isn't even scripture. And this guy is a faithful, active, devout member who's one of the most well-respected, faithful Mormon scholars in the world. And yep. that was surprising. Um, anyway, let's jump on to the next slide. The devil is in the details with polygamy. Yeah, and so this is one of the, we've talked about this so many times with these topics where a lot of times if you get below the surface, that's when you start to really see that the details are going to give you a really clear picture of what's going on. And so we talk about this all the time. And with polygamy, you're going to have a lot of members that rationalize it um, by saying something like it'll all work out in the end. We just don't know everything. Um, And a lot of people will say, I hear this all the time, which is I'm so glad I don't have to live in a time where we practice that. And um, the fact is, this is still the doctrine of the church. And every member of the church needs to understand how Joseph Smith implemented engaged in polygamy, because this is still the doctrine of the church. DNC 132 is still canonized doctrine, and the implications are still there for the eternities. Um, When we talk about the church removing polygamy, we're talking about the church removing polygamy for time, meaning on earth. But after death, this is still what every member of the church has to look forward to. And if you're a member of the church and you're saying, I'm so glad I don't have to live um, under the polygamy, I mean, I feel so horrible saying this, but you do have to live through it. It's just that instead of living through it for eternity, plus our 80 years on earth, you just have to live for eternity with it. And so this is not something um, that goes away uh, forever. This is under the church's doctrine. Unless they decan, you know, remove uh, 132 from the canon, this is still what you have to look forward to. And so when women say they have a choice, as we go through these episodes, you have to understand your choice is to accept or be destroyed. And people will say, oh, you're taking it out of context. And we'll get to it when we get to the DNC 132 episode. But these, this is not out of context. This is something the church doesn't want to talk about because they know how uncomfortable it is. They know how damning it is. But at the same time, until they remove it, this is the future for every woman in the church and every man in the church for eternity. Yeah, and I think a great reference to that is the book, The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy by Carolyn Pearson. I'll include that in the show notes. And also, we do an interview with Carolyn Pearson about her book on Mormon stories. So we'll include that in uh, the show notes as well. Okay, so the next slide is every believing member of the church needs to know this information. And we've already kind of made this point. You made it with the missionaries. So what do you want to summarize about this slide that we haven't? Yeah, you know, all I say is just these things are not going to be easy. They're not going to be fun, but if you don't know them, you can't possibly understand, I guess, what you're sustaining in church every Sunday. And as I said earlier, if you're sending your kids off to missions, if you're bringing your kids to church on Sunday and you're doing it without knowing the full history of the church, I think you're doing a disservice, not to yourself, but to your, your family as well. And and I know people get really offended by that, but I do believe that we, um, myself having, having a kid who's, who's at the age now, we're starting to kind of understand more and more of this stuff. I feel like if he doesn't have the full picture, 
and you just send them with one side, it's just, it's not putting them on a path that is, um, you know, I would argue yeah. the, the best one. And, and the church had uh, updated their handbook. I believe this was in 2021. It might've been 2020, but they have a, the section about basically, you know, sources of, you know, sources in, in information. And it says in today's world, information is easy to access and share. This can be a great blessing for those seeking to be educated and informed. However, many sources of information are unreliable and do not edify. Some sources seek to promote anger, contention, fear, or baseless conspiracy theories. Therefore, is it, impo- it is important that church members be wise as they seek the truth. And this is the problem where you hear all the time in the church where they'll say, if it makes you feel good, it's from God. If it makes you feel bad, it's from the devil. This stuff is not going to make you feel good. It's not going to edify. It's not going to uh, make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. And the church is going to want you to think that because of that, you need to stay away from it. And it's not reliable. But the problem is these are all historically based. A lot of these are accounts by the by the, the wives of Joseph Smith themselves or the people around Joseph Smith. And so them not being edifying is not because Satan you know, caused me to write this or because the adversary is trying to deceive you away from the church. It's because the history of the church and the history of polygamy is so much more troubling than what we've been taught that it's going to make you feel upset to hear it. But I just want to state up front that that does not mean it's from Satan. It just means that's how you feel in response to the information. And that's something you need to be aware of as we go through these episodes, because a lot of times we feel bad and we want to run. It's the whole backfire effect thing. It's the fight or flight mentality. Um, I just want to state up front that you're, this is not going to be edifying, but it is going to be historically backed. And at the end of this, do it through what you want. But I just want to make that clear because the church often tells us if it makes you feel bad, don't read it, don't listen to it. But this is history, and it's not going to make you feel good. Yeah, yeah, that's a really that's a really important point. Um, okay, the next slide. The devil is in the details. Oh, wait, that's oh wait. We go. Uh, two more. There you go. Okay, uh, religious yeah, leaders go. have justified polygamy beyond Joseph Smith. So we're going to do a whole episode on Joseph Smith's happiness letter. Um, but we're, this is part of what we're going to cover in that episode is Jonathan Streeter, who um, has the YouTube channel um, Thoughts on Things and Stuff, which is awesome, and you should subscribe if you don't. Um, he did a, a presentation at Sunstone about the happiness letter, and it was one of the most important presentations I've ever heard uh, from Mormon history. And when I heard it the first time, I was absolutely floored, and that's why we're going to do a whole episode on it because it's that important. And he made this point, and I think every member of the church – again, needs to understand that polygamy is something that every, um, not every, but a lot of high demand religious leaders have done in the same manners, the same kind of tactics as Joseph Smith. And so in his presentation, he says the following, keep in mind that special divine permission is nothing new. Self-proclaimed prophet David Koresh and the Branch Davidians claim special divine permission to take child brides for the purposes of producing the 24 elders foretold in the book of Revelations. Self-proclaimed prophet Wayne Bent of the Lord Our Righteousness Church claims special divine permission for having sexual relations with children, even his own daughter-in-law, in order to avoid God's punishment. Self-proclaimed prophet Julia Shacknow of the sect known as The Work claims special privilege to promise salvation in exchange for sexual intercourse with women and children, including his own stepdaughter. Self-proclaimed prophet Tony Alamo of Alamo Christian Ministries claims special biblical permission to illegally marry multiple women and children. Self-proclaimed prophet David Berg of Children of God claims special permission to normalize sexual relation with children. Prophets justifying their own predations as special divine permission through the use of pious language and religious sentiment is nothing new. And that's going to make you feel like crap to hear. 
But the point is, as you listen to this, and when I this doesn't even mention Warren Jeffs, as you listen to these episodes, understand that you have to, once you start to give special pleading to what Joseph Smith is doing here, you then have to look at all of these other leaders who did the exact same thing in the voice of God. And at some point, you have to either say it's different because I believe in it, or this is a pattern that's been done throughout history. And every time that someone has done it, it's shown to not be from God. It's shown to be abused. And we're going to go through this in a lot more detail. But I just want to get that out up front because this is something that is done, has been done by a lot of leaders. It's being done by a lot of religious leaders and some of the offshoots, especially the you know the fundamentalist offshoots. And yeah, it's horrific. Yeah. And if you find it to be horrific with them, you can't then turn around and say, this is from God with us. I, I have a really hard time with that. Yeah. Yeah. That, this really struck home to me when I watched the recent HBO documentary, The Vow, about Keith Raniere and Nexium, the Nexium cult. Yep. And then when I watched uh, David Koresh in the Waco video, where David Koresh is like sitting on the roof with one of his yeah. married male followers, and it's like, hey, I've got a, I've got a higher law I want to share with you. And the followers like, okay, what? And he's like, Joseph, David Koresh is like, I want to relieve you of the burden of having sexual relations with your wife. I'll take that burden on for you so that you can focus on your spirituality. And I'm just like, this is every cult leader ever is he starts sleeping with, with his father's wives and then daughters. And you don't have to, you don't have to riff on that. I just wanted to say me too. That's kind of, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, yeah. and, and that's really the problem. It's just the fact that we, we've talked about this with a lot of episodes where, these things are all around, and in this case, it's been happening before Joseph Smith. It's happening since Joseph Smith. And yeah. when we talk about special pleading, it's when you're saying, yeah, all of those people are completely horrific and wrong, but mine is different. Yeah. And I think that's really a hard case to make, especially as we go through these episodes. And we're going to reference back to this quote um, more as we go. But it's really important just to note this is not unique to Joseph Smith. And a lot of people in positions of authority have been doing the same thing yeah. for you know hundreds of years yeah it's kind of the human condition okay yep. so now we get to a very basic timeline of the introduction of mormon polygamy yeah and so this one is one you know where i talked earlier about how you know i was kind of getting some extra details so with the fanny alger relationship that is what is considered by the church to be joseph's first first marriage and from the standpoint like where I'm at, I don't believe it was a marriage. We'll get through the reasons why I think that, but this could have happened anywhere from 1833 to early 1836. And so the church wants to claim this is a marriage, but there are no records that exist of it being a marriage. There's only some descriptions of a marriage that come late. Um, and we'll cover this in a, in a couple slides. So that would be kind of like, depending on where you date that, that might be the first kind of introduction to Mormon polygamy. Um, I would also note that, and we'll get to this in a few slides, the church wants to say in 1831, Joseph Smith was first given the revelation. We'll get to that as well. Um, in 1835, the church, under the leadership of Joseph Smith, inserts a section to the Doctrine and Covenants, which denounces polygamy. Okay, and I keep forgetting. So Book of Commandments didn't have that section in it? It did not. Okay, okay. I forget yeah. that sometimes. No, it did not. And okay. so that's that's the first time that's put in there. 1836 is when Joseph um, will claim to have a vision of both Elias, Elias and Elijah, who are the same person with different translations, um, to restore the priesthood keys, which are later to be understood to be sealing keys. Um, that'll be important as we go, just because especially with the Fanny Alger timeline. Um, 1841 is when the polygamous marriages for Joseph begin in Nauvoo with Louisa Beeman. 1842, uh, we talked about this, I think, a little bit, I think we talked about this in the previous episode, but Joseph actually slows down his polygamous marriages because um, John Bennett's trying to 
uh, you know, he's involved in what is the church term spiritual wifery, and that's kind of exposed. And because it's exposed, it kind of almost brings Joseph down with him. So Joseph Smith kind of has to stop everything uh, for a period of time because of all of the rumors that are now swirling around. You can almost Even, think you can almost think of spiritual wifery as code for for polygamy that Joseph doesn't like, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. We our our our, our fifth episode is going to really hammer on apologetics and really focus a lot on apologetics. And and that's the thing. Like, you know, it's all about framing, right? It's all about how you frame words to get the the re, the reaction you want. And so it's like kind of one of those things where spiritual wifery and polygamy or plural marriage, however you want to call it, it's all the same thing. It's just how do you want to kind of market it so that one is bad and one is good? And yeah, it's. Patrick it, Patrick called polygamy Patrick Mason called polygamy apologetics lipstick on a pig. That was lit- those is. are literally his words. So. And he's right because at some point you you know one of the things we'll talk about in these episodes is that the church does everything they can to make Joseph Smith seem as clean and perfect as they can, especially like in their essay. And in doing so, you're trying to demonize everyone else who's doing the same things Joseph is literally teaching them to do. Yeah. And and John C. Bennett obviously was not a good person. Uh, I think he was doing a lot of horrible things, but I also feel like John C. Bennett was picked by Joseph and, and brought up through the church very quickly because of the fact that they were close. I mean, and they were, they were, you know, yeah. learning off each other and we'll get into that as we go. But yeah, it, spiritual wifery, it really is more of just, you know, I, my background is in marketing. And so I always think of that as like, you know, in marketing, you have different terms and they can meet, they're the same term, but they'll give you a different reaction from a customer. Well, in this case, Plural marriage in the church is what they like to use. Plural marriage is like all refined or celestial, and awesome. celestial, it's marriage. celestial, and then spiritual yeah. wifery is like this complete debauchery, oh, which that's horrible. you know, and, yeah. and, that, and that's what they would consider like any other sect to be doing, like whether it's Warren Jeffs or John C. Bennett or David Koresh. In reality, it's kind of like there's a, a meme from The Office where Pam's sitting there and they're like, "Corporate wants you to." I forgot the meme, and, and they show her two things, and she says they're the same thing. I mean, that's kind of what that is. Right. It, it's it's the same thing. And yeah. so anyways, okay. um, 1843, Joseph resumes polygamy, marries over a dozen women, and that brings the total to over 30. And then on July 12th, 1843, Joseph actually recites the revelation to William Clayton, which is now known as DNC 132. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, pay, we should pay attention to Fanny Alger as the first kind of plural wife that that the church now acknowledges and we'll get to the fact that she was a domestic uh, help in the home, that there was undue influence there, but that's before, before the actual ceiling power was ever given. We'll get to that. And then, and then a couple things that are just jumping out at me is just that, is that Joseph's 20 or 30 wives in before the DNC 132 is even revealed, which is clearly problematic as well. So, okay. That's, that's a great summary. The next slide is the Book of Mormon and polygamy. And we covered this in a previous episode. I think we've covered it in multiple previous episodes. But the Book of Mormon is absolutely clear that polygamy is abominable. And so I'm just going to read you this. You've probably all heard this. It's in Jacob 2. It says, Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which thing was abominable before me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, thus saith the Lord, I have led this people forth out of the land of Jerusalem by the power of mine arm, that I might raise up unto me a righteous branch from the fruit of the loins of Joseph. Wherefore, I, the Lord God, will not suffer that this people shall do like unto them of old. Wherefore, my brethren, hear me and hearken to the word of the Lord. For there shall not be any man among you, save it be one wife and concubines, he shall have none. 
For I, the Lord God, delight in the chastity of women, and whoredoms are an abomination before me, thus saith the Lord of hosts. Wherefore this people shall keep my commandments, saith the Lord of hosts, or cursed be the land for their sakes. For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people, otherwise they shall hearken unto those things, these things. And then in verse 23, you know, just, we're, you know, in the Book of Mormon, we are told that God tells the people they are seeking to excuse themselves in committing whoredoms because of the things which were written concerning David and Solomon and his son. And so, I just... Can I, can I give I, two reactions to that? Yeah, please do. So, as the learner here, number one, what I get from that scripture, if, you know, from past episodes, what I've learned is that the, the Book of Mormon represents, uh, uh, you know, just like the 1832 First Vision by Joseph Smith shows what Joseph Smith believed in in the Godhead, about the Godhead at the time he gave that that first account of the First Vision. The Book yep. of Mormon represents what Joseph believed or thought or wanted communicated publicly at the time he wrote it. So yep. what this shows is that Joseph generally was against polygamy, at the time that he wrote the Book of Mormon. I'm sure Emma was happy with that. But it also shows in verse 30, if I'm just reading it kind of as a learner, that in his mind he's got like, uh, maybe someday that might be something that we look into, but for now it's a no. That's what I'm yeah. taking. That's what I'm taking from Book of Mormon. Yeah, I think that's it. And so, but the generally um, it's a whoredom. The generally it's bad. Yeah, right. It's yeah, and and you know we we had you had David Bakvoy on. And he talked about the different scriptures, and you would ask him about polygamy, and he was like, "Well, in no point in the Bible does God command polygamy right. in any kind of widespread way." I think there's one instance in the Bible where He commands one person to enter into polygamy to take care of a family member or something like that, but not like this. And uh, and then he also talks about how. In the Bible, whenever there's polygamy, it ends poorly. So it's not written as if this is a good thing to do. And so the Book of Mormon is often using Bible stories to to basically repurpose into a 19th century theology. We've talked about this over and over again. There's so much in the Bible that comes into the Book of Mormon that's an ideological myth that he brings in as literal history. Or um, like we talked about in the priesthood restoration, he brings in um, you know a misreading of Hebrews 7 about the Melchizedek priesthood, which is going to then kind of flow through and, and the long ending of Mark and all these other things. But the, the, the reality with the book of Mormon is that he appears to be making very clear through the voice of God, that God finds polygamy to be repulsive. And so this is going to be something that everyone needs to kind of remember from this episode, because this is going to spill over into the, pretty much every one of the next few episodes, because Joseph Smith, just as he does with other areas of the church is going to contradict himself. But in this case, he's going to contradict God. And that is where you run into a lot of problems when you're creating things in the voice of God, but then you have to change them later. Uh, you're going to make God look very indecisive um, and very unsure of himself because, or herself. But um, this is going to be an area where God is going to directly contradict God's own words in, in future stuff. And, and that is a problem if you believe God is is never uh, changing and, and like eternally consistent. Right. So I'm I'm guessing that for this next slide, implications of the Book of Mormon polygamy, we've covered some of that. Anything else you want to say from this slide? Yeah, you know what? Not not really much. Just just to say again, that Jacob two twenty three says that the people are looking to excuse themselves and committing whoredoms because of the things which were written concerning David and Solomon his son. I just want everyone to remember that because that's going to be so important in the next few episodes. Because okay. the Book of Mormon is saying that these people are committing these bad things because they're trying to excuse. Um, 
themselves because they're doing horrible things by using David and Solomon as justification. And we'll get into it, but DNC 132, God basically is like, oh yeah, that's justified. So <laughs> it, it's a huge problem. It's it's, it's like, almost like projection. Like Joseph is yeah. signaling to you in the future what he's going to be doing. Well, I mean, yeah. And why, and why he's doing that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, that's the problem with speaking in the voice of God. And, and we've talked about this in, in past episodes, but that was why when Russell Nelson in 2015 went out of his way to say that God confirmed upon every one of the apostles that he wanted that November 15 policy of exclusion and that it was direct revelation that he put himself in a box because when the church had to reverse it three and a half years later, then all of a sudden it's got to be revelation from God again. And then all of a sudden you go, why in the world is God unable to see what's going to happen three and a half years later? And this is the same problem here, except this is something that's so much more foundational to the church. And it's based off of what is really just a confused version of God in the Mormon framing. And that's a huge problem if you're creating revelation and they're just contradicting each other. And as you said, I think what Patrick Mason said is, is true. Like trying to excuse this is just putting lipstick on a pig because this is, as we'll show in these episodes, just a mess and trying yeah. to justify it at this right. point, I think is a losing battle. Yeah. Okay. So, so this next slide, we're going to, we're jumping back to 1831 now. And as I'm remembering the timeline, you just showed us the reason why we're jumping back to 1831 is because, because the timeline is so problematic for the church in terms of the ceiling power. Well, Fanny Alger coming before the ceiling power and then, and then polygamy coming before the, the uh, DNC 132 that's all problematic. And so the reason why we're starting with 1831 is because the church needs something to pin polygamy on prior to Fanny Alger. 1831 is a date and an event that the church can say, hey, we've got some yeah. polygamy stirrings before Fanny Alger even happened. So I'm guessing that's why right now we're jumping to 1831. Is that right? Yeah. So I mean, we, we started with the Book of Mormon, which is like 1829. Now we're jumping to 1831, but this is why it's important because in the DNC heading, they'll say, although the revelation was recorded in 1843, evidence indicates that some of the principles involved in the revelation were known by the prophet as early as 1831. And so they are trying now to say that basically Joseph Smith got this revelation 12 years earlier than he recorded it. And their essay on polygamy and Kirtland and Nauvoo states, basically restates this idea by saying, the revelation on plural marriage was not written down until 1843, but its early verses suggest that part of it emerged from Joseph Smith's study of the Old Testament, Old Testament 1831. People who knew Joseph well later stated he received the revelation about that time. And the, like you said, the one big reason the church needs to pinpoint polygamy back this early is because of his affair with Fanny Alger. And we're going to cover that more um, the Fanny Alger, but we need to get into what this 1831 revelation is actually about because it's not helpful to what the church is saying whatsoever. And that's why they don't actually tell you what it was. Yeah. Okay. So what is the 1831 revelation on polygamy about? And so we covered this in the episodes on race and the scriptures of Mormonism, but the people that know jo knew Joseph well here refers to W.W. Phelps, Oliver Cowdery, and five other men who received instruction for their mission to go to the Indians to take additional wives to make the Indians whiter. And this is from the claimed revelation. Now, this is W.W. Phelps. He's claiming this happened in 1831. He says, it is my, well, he's saying that Joseph Smith is saying this. It is my will that in time ye should take unto you wives of the Lamanites and Nephites, that their posterity may become white, delightsome, and just, 
for even now their females are more virtuous than their Gentiles, than the Gentiles. And so W.W. Phelps is a friendly source. And so you would say that W.W. Phelps is writing this down years later, and he's trying to pin this into a polygamous thing because, he, you know, they're, of course, they're looking at it through the lens of, of polygamy being open at this time. But we also have an antagonistic source that confirms that Joseph Smith claimed a revelation from God that they should marry the Native Americans. And this is, as we talked about in the race and the scriptures episode, this is who Joseph Smith, of course, labels as the Lamanites in claimed revelation from God. And so this is Ezra Booth who left the church. And after he leaves, he kind of writes these pretty scathing letters. And so in 1831, he writes, it has been made known by revelation that it will be, will be pleasing to the Lord should they form a matrimonial alliance with the natives. And by this means the elders who comply with the thing so pleasing to the Lord and for which the Lord has promised to bless those who do it abundantly, gain a residence in the Indian territory independent of the agent. And so we have two sources, one positive, one negative, both saying that in 1831, Joseph Smith is claiming a revelation that they should take the Native Americans um, as wives or or concubines because it's not really um, laid out here that they would actually be like live-in wives. This would be more of like a concubine kind of system. Yeah, it, it almost seems like they're away from their families. Yep. And they're going to be restless. They're going to want some sex, frankly. And so, yeah, these these Native Americans, they're darker. They're not worth as much anyway. You, you don't have to, like, actually live, live with them and pr- support them financially. But if you're there and if they're, you know, families are okay with it, you can go ahead and take them as a concubine, sleep with them. So that's one. It's sort of showing a real devaluing of them as people because you're not really showing full commitment. But then also there's just this racist idea that we talked about in the, in the race and Mormonism episode where, where they don't fully understand how genetics and melanin works or melatonin or whatever melanin and not melatonin melanin. And so they're basically saying we as white people are so good that if we mix our seed, you know, or have sex with the natives, their kids are going to be more white, which in their minds means more righteous that's not helping anybody. <laughs> yeah, and, and they're trying, you know, in a, in a way, I think um, Ezra Booth's comment almost seems like he's saying you could take these women as concubines, and then as you have churches, you're going to then get more members of the church in these Native American or Indian reservations, which will give you more influence in their lands, which is also kind of a horrible <laughs> thing, which is to say that you're telling these people, go preach to them, have sex with the women, and then as you have kids with them, you're going to have more members of the church there, and that will gain you a residence in the Indian territories, as Rabu says. And that's kind of a bad thing, too, because it feels from, like, looking at it now, it feels like a kind of shady way to work your way into areas that you're trying to get into. I know from a, from a believing standpoint, you'd say that this allows the Native Americans to come to Christ by spreading the gospel, by getting more kids in there. I just I feel like when you have W.W. Phelps talking about how the revelation wants them to become more white and the fact that this has nothing to do with sealing, this has nothing to do with anything that has to do with the 1843 revelation. You've got all sorts of problems citing this as as a as a continuation from this to 1843. This is just not the same thing. It's also super colonialistic. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, and then finally, now that we know that that Native Americans predominantly don't have. He, he, you know, Hebrew DNA, but they have Asiatic DNA. Now that the church doesn't even know who the Lamanites are, again, it begs the question, they're, they're, are they even sleeping with Lamanites at all, right? <laughs> yeah, I, it's just, it's, it's yeah. a mess. And it, yeah. to cite that, 
and there's a reason they cite that without telling you what it is. And um, so this is another 1831 reference to polygamy that the church is never going to cite. Because, well, I mean, they cite it kind of, but like, so Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner Smith, who is famous in church history for protecting the printed copies of the Book of Commandments when the mob came in Missouri, uh, was later a polyandrous wife of Joseph Smith. And we'll get to polyandry later. And she gives this account of her introdu- introduction to polygamy. Uh, this is in her own words. At the age of 12 in 1831, Joseph Smith told me about his great vision concerning me. He said I was the first woman God commanded him to take as a plural wife. In 1834, he was commanded to take me for a wife. In 1842, I went forward and was sealed to him. Brigham Young performed the sealing for time and all eternity. I did just as Joseph Smith told me to do. And this is from In Sacred Loneliness, which is another um, resource that everyone who wants to know more about, more about polygamy should read because uh, Todd Compton, I think, allows the women to kind of tell their own stories as opposed to having the church tell it for them. But, um, and I think he's still a believing member. Um, but anyways, this is, I, I, I want to be clear. I don't believe this, this story at all. I think that Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner Smith is trying to write to retrofit polygamy in so that it makes sense in the timeline, because I do not believe for a second that Joseph Smith in 1831 is going to a 12 year old and telling her that he's going to marry her. I, I don't believe that. So um, it, it just goes to show we've talked about this so often in these episodes that so much of church history is retrofitted back into these accounts um, to be, be more faith promoting and in a lot of cases more consistent. Um, but that being said, if you're going to cite uh, references among those who knew Joseph best, you then have to concede that Joseph Smith is talking to 12-year-old girls and saying that God uh, commanded him to marry them. I just, it, it's a, um, if they want to cite these things, then cite them, but this is not helpful. And there's a reason they don't talk about Joseph Smith going to a 12-year-old and telling her he's going to marry her. And um, if this really did happen, uh, I do not believe for a second that she'd marry someone else in 1835. So I, I just don't believe it's true. That being said, if you're going to cite these sources, cite them. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, that's uh, not a helpful, not a helpful statement. No. And so these are two 1831 revelations that are completely unaware of any polygamous revelations. And so um, I want to just kind of bring these up because they're going to contradict DNC 132, but they're also going to contradict the church's statement that Joseph Smith was aware of this revelation already. So um, DNC 42 uh, verse 22 was written in 1831. It says, Thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart and shall cleave unto her and none else. And DNC 49, uh, 16, which was also in 1831, says, Wherefore it is lawful that he should have one wife and they twain shall be one flesh and all this that the earth might answer the end of its creation. So both of these are written in 1831 when we're told that Joseph Smith already had polygamy revealed to him. And they're both explicit that you should have one wife and shall cleave unto her and no one, none else. And so this is an area where you could see that the church is trying to back backfill um, a problematic revelation to an earlier time so that it works. But then you also have these conflicting data points constantly that say that Joseph Smith was not thinking about these things in any possible way yet. And as a final note, Joseph Smith would edit these revelations in 1835, which would give him a second chance if he wanted to leave some space for polygamy as he edited so many other revelations and yet he did not take that chance. So not only was he unaware of a revelation about polygamy in 1831, but he's also unaware in 1835 when he's making these edits. Yeah, it's a, it's a God of confusion. You know, I was always taught growing up as a Mormon that God is not a God of confusion or the author of confusion. 
Right. And it makes no sense that God's revealing to Joseph the law of polygamy as it relates to Native Americans in 1831, and in the same year is is giving Joseph revelations to put in the Mormon scripture that polygamy is, you know, bad or that you should have just one wife or uh, all that stuff. It just, that that makes no sense. So that's a really good yep. thing to, to highlight. Yeah, and that's why when we get to DNC 132, I think multiple times in that revelation, he says, you know, my house is a house of order. And it's like, well... Yeah. <laughs> kind of in the Mormon framing of God, it's not. And, and that's why we see that all the time. There's just so many contradictions in God's own voice. And that does not make sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyways, so we're talking about how the church's essay frames the timing of the revelation. And so, you know, we talked about this earlier where it says the revelation was not written down until 1843, but it's early verses suggest that part of it came from a study of the old Testament in 1831. People who knew Joseph well later stated he received the revelation about the time. And you know, the early verses of DNC 132 are set up to justify polygamy, but they're using incorrect Bible references. The, you know, we talked about this at the beginning of the episode. God never once commands Abraham to enter into polygamy. He does not. Sarah commands him to take um, Hagar. God never has any part in that. God only goes to Hagar and says, you know, you need to go back because, uh, you know, obviously it goes poorly with, with Sarah after it happens. Um and those who, as we talked about just a few slides ago, those who knew Joseph Smith well um, were saying that he wanted to take Native American children to make their posterity wider. Um, not that Joseph Smith was teaching any form of polygamy that would be practiced uh, by the church later on, such as ceilings and, you know, doing um, kind of like this eternal mindset of, of, of marriages. There's none of that here. And so the way they frame the timing of the revelation just simply does not match the historical record. I also want to just call attention to that word later. People who knew Joseph well later stated he received the revelation about that time. I mean, yep. if if there's the pattern of motivated reasoning in all of this Mormon history that we're reading, then of course if men who are practicing polygamy later, you know, just like with just like with Joseph and Oliver backdating John the Baptist as giving yeah. the Aaronic priesthood and Peter, James, and John is giving the Melchizedek priesthood. He's doing that years after it allegedly happened. Just like years later, almost over a decade later, he's claiming the first vision. There's always kind of this, let's rewrite history. Uh, there's this impulse to rewrite history to justify current crises or trauma. Yep. It just would totally fit the pattern if men who are trying to justify polygamy later are remembering back into the history, Joseph talking about polygamy from before Fanny Alger, so yep. that they could then make an excuse for Fanny Alger. I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just saying no. that would fit the pattern. Yeah, and in that particular case, they're, they're referring to W.W. Phelps because that's his recollection of Joseph Smith's 1831 revelation, which I think he writes down like 1860 or something. <laughs> yeah. But right. the, the thing is, to your point, they need not just to, to backfill into the timing for Fanny Alger, but they also need to backfill that Joseph Smith was unquestionably a polygamist because this is also when the church, uh, the Brigham Young faction and the RLDS are basically, they hate each other and they don't trust each other. And so the Brighamite church needs to make Joseph Smith as polygamous as they can because they need to to basically draw that to for their you know authority. And the RLDS church is saying, no, he wasn't. And so... Um, this backdating by W.W. Phelps, who is in the Brighamite church, also serves their purpose at that time, not just for Joseph Smith's character and, and all that, but also for 
their current needs at that time, which is to prove beyond a doubt that Joseph Smith was a polygamist. So, yeah, yeah to your point, those are those quotes are very, um, very have high motivated reasoning. And the only reason that I love that quote, and by love, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I like it for this particular thing is because we have Ezra Booth's quote, which confirms it and his is contemporary. So we have a positive and a negative source. So I think that's why it's important. Got it. So, all right, now we're getting to Fanny Alger. And as I said earlier, um, the key reason the church wants to, to make sure that, that the polygamy revelation was backed by 1831 is because a few years later, Joseph's going to be caught in a scandalous relationship with Fanny Alger. Um, no precise records exist. So we have people that believe it happened in 1833, and then some have it going kind of early to mid-1836. Excuse me. And depending on when you date it, Joseph Smith's going to be between 27 and 30 years old, and Fanny's going to be between 16 and 19 years old. And Fanny Alger is going to be a live-in maid. So basically, she's going to live in their house to help Emma Smith, and um, she's going to live with them starting in 1833, which is why that's kind of the earliest this could have happened. And the church's essay kind of talks about this relationship in the following way. They say, Fragmentary evidence suggests that Joseph Smith acted on the angel's first command by marrying a plural wife, Fanny Alger, in Kirtland, Ohio, in the mid-1830s. Several Latter-day Saints who had lived in Kirtland reported decades later that Joseph had married Alger, who lived and worked in the Smith household after he had obtained her consent and that of her parents. And just with that Mary Elizabeth Rollins-Leitner Smith quote, I do not believe this was a marriage. And I think when we get to the, the actual quote, you're going to understand why in the exact same way we just talked about with the W.W. Phelps thing, the, this late quote that we're going to get where they say decades later uh, is very self-serving because once again, it's in a time when you're trying to privilege Joseph Smith and it's so long after the fact. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. So this is the one. And so, as I was saying, there's no record of a marriage. There's no documentation that a marriage took place on a certain day. And this is important to note because the church wants to de- needs to declare this as a polygamous marriage because they do not want it to be an affair from a prophet of God who is using, you know, the exact same tactics later to marry other women. And so this is the quote they're going to give us. And this is from Mosiah Hancock which is a second-hand source to his father, Levi, from 1869. And he says, Therefore, Brother Joseph said, Brother Levi, I want to make a bargain with you. If you will get Fanny Alger for a wife, for me for a wife, you may have Clarissa Reed. I love Fanny. I will, said Father. Go, Brother Levi, and the Lord will prosper you, said Joseph. Father goes to Fanny and said, Fanny, Brother Joseph the prophet loves you and wishes you for a wife. Will you be his wife? I will, Levi, said she. Father takes Fanny to Joseph and said, Brother Joseph, I have been successful in my mission. Father gave her to Joseph, repeating the ceremony as Joseph repeated to him. And so I do not believe for a second that this quote is real. I think there's the fact that there's no record of this marriage tells you that it probably didn't happen. And the fact is there is no record of Joseph having any kind of a um, ceremonial script at this point. That is not going to happen until the 1840s. And so the idea that he had this in the 1830s and it wasn't written down or anything, just doesn't make any sense. Um, And as we talked about, the sealing keys, depending on when you date this, are likely either going to be three years later or like right after um, Joseph Smith is going to be already engaged in this this relationship. And so from the church's perspective, if you want to cite this account, I believe they should put the quote in the essay. Because if you really want to use this, you're going to have to then contend with the fact that we have Joseph Smith using... um, Clarissa Reed is a bargaining chip because Levi Hancock wants to marry 
uh, Clarissa Reed and asks Joseph for permission. I'm not sure why he needed to ask Joseph for permission anyways. And then Joseph says, yeah, you can marry her if you can get me Fanny as a wife. I think if you really want to use this quote, then all of a sudden you've got Joseph Smith using women as bargaining chips uh, for spiritual favors. And I think that is horrific too. So it's like, pick your poison here. And so the church is going to kind of, you know, vaguely reference this, this uh, citation, but they're not going to tell you what it says. The other thing I'll just note is from our, my readings of Doctrine and Covenants 132, specifically when we had Sandra Tanner on, there's this language in DNC 32, which is like, and behold, if if you are righteous and she is a virgin, she, be, she shall be given unto you. There's all this language in DNC 132 that women are kind of like cattle to be given and assigned yeah. by God or by God's prophet. And so this idea, this quote of like, you give me Clarissa and, you know, you give me Fanny, I'll give you Clarissa. It's very consistent with, with the way DNC 132 describes how the patriarchy views women more as cattle and bargaining chips than actually as humans. It also fits in really well with, I think, how polygamy went once you got from Joseph Smith and then into Utah. I mean, they're, they're you know, listening to like Lindsay Hanson Park's episodes, there are a lot of instances where you have people that are basically making deals, um, you know, to almost exchange women for favors. And so this, th- th- that's why this quote is very anach- anachronistic to 1833 or 34, whenever you want to date the marriage, 30, even 35, 36. Um, it's very anachronistic, but I just, I love the fact that they're citing this quote that has Joseph Smith basically using, you know, Fanny and, and Clarissa Reed as bargaining chips, which I think they would really want to avoid telling their members because it, it reads awful when you read it. And, um, and like I said, it's just, it's, it's so the way, as you said, it's phrased, it just, it's out of place to that time frame, And so that is a really good indicator that that is not a true account. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So, so what was the fallout? So the fallout was huge, obviously. And, uh, it caused a lot of problems for Joseph Smith. Uh, Emma Smith threw her out of the house when she found out that they were having a relationship. Um, Oliver Cowdery in a letter, uh, wrote, that it was a dirty, nasty, filthy affair of his and Fanny Alger's was talked about, was talked over, in which I strictly declared that I had never deserted from the truth in the matter, and as and as I suppose was admittedly by himself, um, and so um, this creates a lot of issues. And so the church's essay says that after the marriage with Alger ended in separation, Joseph seems to have set the subject of plural marriage aside until after the church moved to Nauvoo, Illinois, and. Again, what they don't mention is that the relationship ended in separation because Emma kicked her out of the house, uh, I believe, in the middle of the night uh, after finding them together. And so according to William McClellan, uh, he's an early member of the church who would know, um, but he's later considered to be an antagonistic source because he apostatized and obviously was was um, not a fan of Joseph Smith. Um, he told Joseph Smith's son the following. Again, I told her, Emma Smith, I heard that one night she missed Joseph and Fanny Alger. She went to the barn and saw him and Fanny in the barn together alone. She looked through a crack and saw the transaction. She told me the story too was verily true. And so you have this um, relationship that's building with, with Joseph and Fanny. And once it's discovered, Emma kicks her out of the house, uh, you know, which ends whatever relationship they had. Oliver Cowdery is, this is going to play into largely into his excommunication from the church because he does not view it as a marriage. Remember Oliver Cowdery at this point is basically the number two. This is, you know, if you want to believe Fanny, uh, the, that the relationship was in 1835 or 36, which I know is what Brian Hales and Dan Vogel both agree on. Um, it might be before the ceiling 
key the keys in the Curlin Temple, but either way, it's it's a little later than 1833. That would be before Oliver, or it would be after Oliver was made the number two man after he creates the priesthood restoration story. So you have the number two person in the church who has no idea yeah. that Joseph Smith has this polygamy revelation because he's calling it an affair. And I think that's another important indicator because we're often always like, oh man, Oliver got excommunicated for it. And it's like, yeah, that's important. But it's also important because that tells us that he had no idea that Joseph Smith was creating any kind of system of polygamy or had yeah. a revelation on it because he would know. <laughs> yeah, you can't like on the one hand say, well, Oliver is a credible witness to the Book of Mormon you know, he's one of the three witnesses, so you got to believe him. And he's also a witness to the priesthood restorations. Yep. And, you know, but but then all of a sudden, God wants Oliver to be a witness to all these sorts of things, but then leaves Oliver completely out of the loop when it comes yep. to polygamy. There's something that stinks there that yep. God that God wouldn't care enough about polygamy and plural marriage and women and families to, and, and at some point, Oliver was even like co-president of the church. He wasn't just yeah. like, he was like co-president. And yep. so it's just suspicious. But then also women often remind us that, what about Emma? Like, didn't oh, Emma yeah. deserve a revelation? Didn't, you know, later DNC 132's got this law of Sarah that basically says that the first wife needs to consent to, or at least be given the option of consent of subsequent yep. wives. So why didn't, why didn't Emma deserve a visit from God too? Or does God just not care about the women? And, and so I I think we often forget, forget that God owed something, not just to Oliver, but to Emma as well. Oh yeah. I mean, it just shows, like I said, it shows that all of this is in Joseph's head. And at this point, just as we talked about with some of these earlier kind of foundational things, such as the first vision and priest restoration, this idea of polygamy is, it's not developed yet. And so this is, uh, I would argue that anyone looking at this from the outside would call this an affair because there is nothing supporting the idea that it's a marriage until you get to years later. And yeah. at that point, they're trying to privilege Joseph Smith. So you can't just go with that without, you know, looking at the the uh, corroborating stuff that we've been talking about. Totally. And so this is com- some more kind of confirmation of how this ends. And so um, after Emma discovers the relationship between her husband and their live-in maid, uh, Emma throws Fanny out of their home. And so um, Analyza Webb Young says, um, now, of course, people consider her antagonistic source, but she um, says, Emma had turned Fanny out of the house in the night. By degrees, it became whispered about that Joseph's love for his adopted daughter was by no means a paternal affection, and his wife, discovering the fact, at once took measures to place the girl beyond his reach. Angered at finding the two persons whom she most loves playing such a treacherous part towards her, she by no means spared her reproaches. And finally, the storm became so furious that Joseph was obliged to send at midnight for Oliver Cowdery, his scribe, to come and endeavor to settle matters between them. And so people will dismiss that and say she's an antagonistic source um, after she was a polygamous bride of Brigham Young. Uh, but she would know about this because of the fact that Fanny was sent to her parents' house after Emma kicked her out. And so here is Anne's father, Chauncey Webb, speaking about the incident. He says... Emma was furious and drove the girl who was unable to conceal the consequences of her celestial relation with the prophet out of her house. And so here you've got um, Anne uh, Eliza Webb Young saying that Joseph Smith referred to her as an adopted daughter. And that's important because that happens more than once where Joseph calls someone who lives in the home an adopted daughter and then later proposes, uh, proposes to marry to them. And in this case, I don't believe there was a wedding, but I think 
he probably did call her an adopted daughter. They weren't literally adopted, but just kind of the way that the relationship was. So if you call someone your adopted daughter, you should not be having sexual relations with them. And um, and then you've got her father um, saying that there effectively was a, pr- a pregnancy or some consequence of their sexual relations that caused her to go. And I think most historians don't believe that Joseph Smith got her pregnant, but um, Fanny would marry fairly shortly after leaving um, them. So, I mean, it's, it's possible. I don't think there's any real um, history that shows that she was pregnant, but it does show that this was probably a relationship that lasted months um, and a relationship that uh, was concealed by, from Emma for months between Joseph and his adopted daughter. To me, it also, th- these quotes explain why Oliver Cowdery would call it a dirty, filthy, nasty affair. If it's true that like yep. things with Emma and Joseph were boiling over to the point where Joseph had to call, you know, Oliver Cowdery to come kind of yep. calm Emma down and, and settle things down, that would make sense why Oliver would know about it and would characterize it as a dirty, filthy, nasty affair yep. because he was embroiled in the middle of it. And yeah. so th- this this kind of seems to fit uh, fit well with the story. Yeah. And, um, you know, this kind of foreshadows uh, different elements of, of polygamy. And so um, we're going to see in when we get to the episodes about the different proposals, uh, Joseph Smith's engaging in these relationships behind his wife's back. And as you said, that completely violates what is going to later be written down as DNC 132. And she is actively working to root out polygamy in, in Relief Society. And while she's doing that, many of her closest friends that she believes are working with her are secretly married to her husband. And so... These details are going to make you uncomfortable, but these are historical facts that we're going to have to address as we go through these episodes. And um, he is going to marry women that are people that live in the home that he has a lot of authority over, both with regards to the church and the fact that they're living in his home. Um, And um, this is another area where we need to note that this is not a marriage. And even if you want to claim the later ones are marriages, they're not legal. And so... um, even if Joseph Smith had performed some sort of marriage to Fanny, it would not be legal in the eyes of the law. And it would not have been legal in the eyes of the church if he had not claimed the ceiling keys at this point, which I don't think there's any good reason to think he would have. Um, because even if this relationship had started um, after the uh, Kirtland Temple in April of 1836, as we just talked in the last slide, the indications are this was something that was going on for months. So even if she was kicked out in the you know, summer or the spring, most people think like early 1836, the odds are this was happening before that. And as you said, Oliver Cowdery uh, did not believe it was a marriage. He was the second in command of the church. He was the one that was called to try to get things settled down. If he had any indication that Joseph had a revelation on polygamy, he would not be calling it an affair. And so no matter what you do here, um, there's no good way that that fits this with um, Joseph Smith's later ideas of polygamy or the idea that this could have been a marriage under the new and everlasting covenant. And that's why I think someone like Patrick Mason, who knows all of this would, would just say an attempt to explain this away is lipstick on a pig. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And so this is possibly following the Fanny Alger relationship. There are other rumors with some other members of the church who are engaged in, you know, extramarital affairs. Um, Joseph Smith went on a trip to Michigan and while he was gone, the church writes this uh, article on marriage, which would be later added to the DNC in 1835. And it says, Inasmuch as this church of Christ has been reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy, we declare that we believe that one man should have one wife and one woman, but one husband, except in case of death, when either is at liberty to marry again. And so 
this is not a statement you would put in the DNC unless there were, <laughs> yeah. unless there were rumors persistent right. about Joseph Smith's yeah. relationships. You wouldn't do this. You wouldn't put this because of some low-level member having an affair. This is something you'd put in because there are rumors that are damaging to your church. And so I think um, Todd Compton in, in Sacred Loneliness, he at least at the time he wrote it was a faithful member. I, I think he still is, but he stated, clearly the statement represented an effort to counteract scandal and perhaps to diffuse rumors of Fanny Alger's marriage, possible pregnancy and expulsion. So this is, again, this is not something you'd put in the Doctrine and Covenants unless it was really hindering your top, top people, which in this case would point directly to Joseph Smith because of the fact it, that it also have... completely shoots down the 1831 apologetic that the yeah, church absolutely. wants to advance. Yeah. Because if Joseph is, you can't have it both ways. You can't say Joseph envisioned polygamy as early as 1831 and also say that in 1835, he publishes in the scriptures that yeah. it's bad and forbidden. And we've covered that before, but I'm just going to make that point again. Yeah. Cause I'm sure the apologetic would be to say, well, he had the Reve revelation 1831, but then the world wasn't ready yet, and so they put this in there until the world was ready. But, you know, we've no. talked about at that point. Then it, would have, then it would have the same sort of uh, loophole that the Book of Mormon has, it would which be, yeah. would say, unless I, the Lord, command it. You know what yep. I mean? It wouldn't yep. just, like, condemn it all the way. Yeah, to uh, th me. and that's my, that's my to point, me. too. I think the fact that you're going the opposite way tells you yeah. that you don't have that conception yet. And so um, we talked about this earlier. So in 1836, um, Joseph is going to have the vision in Kirtland Temple to receive the priesthood keys. And so um, this is going to be later kind of retrofitted to mean sealing keys. Remember that, like, I think it was John Hamer was on some podcast, and he was kind of joking about this because we talk about it now as if he got the sealing keys, but he just got keys. And so I think John Hamer said something like, what do, what do keys open? Well, everything, you know, they open doors. So you can later say the keys are whatever you want them to be, but at the time, this is still not fleshed out as ceiling. And so um, this revelation is now known as DNC 110. It's a shared vision between Joseph and Oliver. And again, I want to point out that Joseph claimed to see both Elias and Elijah during this visit in separate visions, uh, even though they're the same person with a different uh, translation, one's Hebrew and one's Greek. Um, so that's a problem right off the bat for the credibility of the vision. Um, but with regard to polygamy, it's not obviously necessarily the big problem, but as we said, typically the church will always associate this with the, the ceiling keys being restored. But if you read DNC 110, you'll see no mission, missions of ceilings, eternal marriage, polygamy, or celestial marriage. Um, the vision is using the idea of keys in the most generic sense, which is then later used to kind of fit whatever evolution Joseph Smith's theology has. Um, and so the church's essay kind of makes this point. They say, the ceiling of husband and wife for eternity was made possible by the restoration of priesthood keys and ordinances. On April 3rd, 1836, the Old Testament prophet Elijah appeared to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in the Kirtland Temple and restored the priesthood keys necessary to perform ordinances for the living and the dead, including sealing, uh, sealing families together. And so, as we've been kind of talking about with Fanny, there's no way that could have been a celestial marriage without proper sealing keys um, if it occurred prior to this. And again, there's dating issues with the Fanny relationship, but... There's also no way that Joseph Smith's 1831 revelation would have had any connection to what is happening in this Kirtland vision because the ideas simply were not developed yet. They're not even developed at this point um, for sealing. At this point, Joseph Smith is getting, we talked about this in the priesthood restoration episode. This is where Joseph Smith is getting him and Oliver the authority above everyone else. No one else can touch their authority now because Joseph and Oliver are sharing this vision to get the keys that they have that they then uh, separate themselves from everyone else as far as authority goes. 
they're going to then use this later on to kind of retrofit it into what they need. But at the time, they are not talking about sealing families together. Yeah, got it. So this one is one I learned from the happiness letter um, uh, episode with Jonathan Streeter and Christopher C. Smith. And this is amazing because this is in 1841. Joseph Smith is starting to ramp up his polygamy. And he's going to introduce a very interesting teaching uh, that he dictated in his journal. So this is, again, this is not just me making, uh, you know, kind of opinions here. This is from November 7th, 1841. This is from Joseph's journal. I charged the saints not to follow the example of the adversary in accusing the brethren and said, if you do not accuse each other, God will not accuse you. If you have no accuser, you will enter heaven. And if you follow the revelations and instructions which God gives you through me, I will take you into heaven as my backload. If you will not accuse me, I will not accuse you. If you will throw a cloak of charity over my sins, I will over yours. For charity covereth a multitude of sins. What many people call sin is not sin. I do many things to break down superstition, and I will break it down. And so this teaching is amazing because this is happening as rumors are swirling around about Joseph's infidelity. Since we, at this point, we have Fanny Algernon, he's starting to engage into a system of polygamy. There's rumors about people around Joseph with the spiritual wifery. And here Joseph Smith is literally telling members, if you don't accuse Joseph of sins, he's not going to accuse you. And so this is like a really um, good way of completely circumventing the idea of sins and confessions and, you know, um, all sorts of um, yeah. accountability accountability by telling members, hey, don't you dare yeah. accuse me of the crap I'm doing. And as long as you don't, you'll be safe. The moment you do, though, I'm throwing everything you have out, out to, the, to the public. And so this is... Uh, yeah, the logical, the logical extension of this. It's like, if I steal money, but nobody accuses me of stealing the money because they don't yeah. know, then it's not a sin. Or if I abuse a child, but I can make sure the child is too afraid to accuse me. Or if I want a little action on the side and the woman's okay with it, and she's okay not telling her husband... No harm, no foul, no accusation, no sin. Like the the implications of this teaching are are very disturbing. They're horrific. And, and to your point, yeah, I mean, like you, uh, again, a believing member is going to listen to what you said. And they're going to say, oh my goodness, how disrespectful to say if I want a little bit of action on the side. But this quote is telling you, if I have an affair with a woman and she doesn't accuse me and I don't accuse her and my wife doesn't know, so she can't accuse me, then I'm going straight to heaven. I mean, yeah. Joseph Smith is saying that and yeah. it's, it's wrong. <laughs> Even if he bad. didn't engage in those behaviors, it's a dangerous revelation. Yeah, this is going to lead to really dangerous things. Yeah, yeah, it's it's problematic. Okay. And so, yeah, this is like Joseph Smith is flipping morality upside down here to help his own authority. And so we're going to talk about this in the next few episodes about Joseph's proposals to, to women. But here, Joseph Smith is flipping doctrine upside down to suit his personal needs. The idea, if you have no accuser, you will enter heaven, is a terrible theology and is explicitly telling people who have been wrong to keep quiet or else Joseph Smith is going to air their dirty laundry in a guaranteed mutual destruction. And so uh, this is just, you know, remember God, uh, sorry, Joseph Smith is telling members that his word is God's word by declaring, if you follow the revelations and instructions which God gives you through me, I will take you into heaven as my backload. And so you're going to see this theme over and over as Joseph proposes to these women. He wants to make sure that the moment you believe he's a prophet, that then at that point, Joseph has ultimate authority over you. And he's constantly giving these teachings, which is to say, basically, if God tells you to marry and have sex with me and you do it, it can't be a sin because you got it through me and I got it through God. And 
This is something we're going to talk about a lot in the happiness letter because these ideas are used explicitly in his writings in the voice of God to pressure young women to marry him. And so as we talked about at the beginning of this episode, these are tactics that Joseph Smith is not unique to using, but other religious leaders who are initiating sexual relationships with their followers use. And so the idea here is that the only person that can speak for God is the leader and that whatever he says is divinely approved. That didn't start with Joseph Smith and it's continued through all of the self-proclaimed prophets we talked about earlier. And that's why people believed Warren Jeffs um, and married and had sex with him because of the fact that Warren Jeffs is using the exact same teachings Joseph Smith is using here um, to claim divine authority to do whatever you want as long as no one accuses you of sin. It's it's so horrific. Yeah. And yep, yep, yep. Yeah, totally. Okay, so now we get introduced to this word that I didn't learn, I don't know, yeah. until probably 2001, 2002. This word, polyandry, that, that most Mormons will have never heard of, but it's one of the most important words, and it's different than polygamy, right? Yeah, and so polyandry um, is going to be one that they're going to talk about in the essay as well. And so this is why I, I had no idea about this until four years ago when I start, first started doing the deep dive. And so the church's essay says, following his marriage to Louisa Beeman and before he married other single women, Joseph Smith was sealed to a number of women who were already married. And I just want to point out that the church is, in this essay, they're really specific on numbers, except for when it comes to Joseph Smith. They're always vague about the numbers because they don't want to say it. Um, Todd Compton puts the number of women um, that were polyandrous uh, to 11. And polyandry means that you're marrying a woman who is already married to another man, um, whereas polygamy is when you marry um, multiple women. And so um, I just find Actually, it funny. Actually, I've, I've heard polygyny is marrying multiple women. Have you heard yeah, that? Yeah, I've heard that too. I've heard that too. So I don't know. I'm sure there's some technical difference in the two. I actually heard that as well from um, the Year Polygamy episodes, and I don't know. It's um, so easy. I, and I forget. I learn it and then I forget. So Yeah, I do too. So I'm looking up polygyny, a pattern of mating in which a male animal has more than one female mate. So that's polygyny, G-Y-N-Y, so P-O-L-Y-G-Y-N-Y. And then if I look up polygamy, it says a pattern of mating in which an animal has more than one mate. So it sounds like technically the term polygamy is 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 just saying multiple mates yeah polygyny means multiple women polyandry means multiple men okay so anyway i'm not yeah, trying to way. correct you that's just what i what i read yeah so polyandry i guess must be from the perspective of the female having more multiple than one husband men. so yeah, yeah. yeah and so in this case um you know, Joseph Smith is going to marry nine of his of the first twelve mar- women he married were, were polyandrous, and so that's from Todd Compton, um, and from In Sacred Loneliness. And so, while the church can't church says a number, Todd Compton can tell you, you know, between uh, nine and you know eleven, and um, and nine of the first twelve uh, of them were polyandrous. And so, the church provides a few reasons for why Joseph would marry women who are already married, and we'll just cover them here. Um, they say there are several explanations possible explanations for this practice. These ceilings may have provided a way to create an eternal bond or link between Joseph's family and other families within the church. Um, Joseph Smith's ceilings to women already, uh, ceilings to women already married may have been an early version of linking one family to another. In Nauvoo, most, if not all of the first husbands seem to have continued living in the same household with their wives during Joseph's lifetime and complaints about these ceilings with Joseph Smith are virtually absent from the documentary record. So, I'm going to say, I'm going to say 
and this is just me kind of as learner, two things. Um, once you read Doctrine and Covenant, and you, you're probably going to talk about this later so we can touch on it briefly if that's the case, but just in my fresh eyes reaction, uh, we'll read later in Doctrine and Covenants 132, this use of the word virgin, that that the woman has to be a virgin to qualify for a celestial marriage, if you want to use that term, or the new and everlasting covenant. So automatically, yep. we're going to assume that women who are already married to men aren't virgins. So there's no way to square polyandry with a, a fair reading, I think, of DNC 132. The only other thing I'll say is, why would Joseph be marrying women of other men's wives? There's probably a power element to it, just like when David Koresh was was trying to have sex with with the wives of, of men in his congregation. There's probably a power element to it. There's probably also a plausible deniability element to it because if a pregnancy does erupt, it's not a, a single, you know, teenage girl. It's it's a woman who's already married to another man. And so that pregnancy isn't going to be a scandal. Now, forgive me yep. if you touch on that later. I'm just giving my cold uh, immediate reaction. No, I do. And those are actually great points because those are some of the things I thought of as well. So that's a, I'm glad you brought them up. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, so yeah, kind of going, touching on what you just said, like, so the one thing I really don't like is that the church will say, and, and you hear this from a lot of apologists today, you hear this from a lot of, of members will say that one of the main purposes of, of polygamy and plural marriage was to intended to link families together. And um, I would point out if you're going to make that argument, it's got to be consistent. And so you look at it and you go, why did so many of Joseph's wives have to be young girls and other men's wives? And the church practiced what was known as the law of adoption, uh, which Joseph Smith also practiced on occasion, which allowed men to be sealed to other men as adopted sons. So if the purpose of polygamy or polyandry was to link families together, why couldn't Joseph have just sealed the men, the husbands to him directly um, rather than sealing himself to their wives or daughters. Because the moment that Joseph seals these women or girls to himself as celestial daughters, or I'm so sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. Joseph could have sealed the girls to himself as celestial daughters rather than wives, which would allow them to have found worthy husbands that they actually loved to spend mm. the eternities with. But yeah. now he's removing them from a normal social life and preventing them from finding actual true love with some of their own age because he's taking them as these, you know, kind of polygamous celestial eternal wives. Mm, and, yeah. you know, the thing that where it really falls fat, flat for me, this idea that it's about creating dynasties is that um, if it was really all about um, eternally, eternity only ceilings that were intended to eternally join friends and families together in the afterlife, there would be no need for the secrecy and lying. Joseph could have said, Emma, I love the Kimballs and I want to be connected with them for eternity. God revealed to me an ordinance that will make this possible. That would require no lying, no denying, no sex, no writing secret letters. Yep. And, and you know, th there's a letter where it says, when Emma comes, you cannot be safe. Burn this letter as soon as you read it. And I know from an apologetic standpoint, they say that's because Joseph was on the run from the law. And, and, and so that would make her unsafe, like in a literal sense. Um, but there's also other letters where he, he tells women to burn them. The point is, if you're trying to make this, you know, about dynasties, and you'll hear this today from a lot of apologists, it doesn't work. And um, this is another area where Joseph Smith is going to marry multiple pairs of sisters. If it's about creating dynasties, why is he marrying pairs of sisters and having sex with them? Yeah. He can marry one, one dog. He can marry one girl. And, you know, as we said earlier, if, if the law of adoption was something Joseph was believed was a, was a real thing, he could have sealed himself to um, Heber Kimball 
as an adopted son. And then Heber could have stayed married to his, you know, to, to what she did. But then he also Helen Mark Kimball, who we'll talk about later, could have then had a real life and not had to any need to be married to Joseph because they'd be sealed together. It's all of this is a mess when you actually just take a step back and look at what they were doing. This this apologetic is is just not it, it's not feasible, and I would argue it's out of necessity and it's very misleading. Yeah, yeah, it just reminds me of of the foreshadowing Joseph does to his own practice about using David and Solomon as a justification for whoredoms. Yeah. That's that that's a you know if you look just look at Occam's razor, what's more likely? Is it more likely yeah. that God is working in this weird, twisted way? Or just that, or that J- Joseph and others are trying to justify, you know, bad bad sexual behavior. That just seems more likely. The and, and another piece of evidence that, in my mind, validates the sex argument instead of the dynasty argument is just that we don't practice dynastic ceilings anymore. So yeah, if, if dynastic ceilings were super important back then, then we'd still be yeah. doing them, but we're not doing them. So again, that's just another piece of evidence on the on the balance of this being more about sex than about god in, in my yeah. view in my view. well i mean yeah i mean it, it, at least it, you know because a lot of people say oh it's not just about sex and and i know there's more to it than sex i think what you said earlier about power there's instances where joseph smith and we'll get to them as we go like with heber c kimball he asked heber for his wife and heber c kimball offers him his wife which We'll get to that. It, that's a horrific one because the essay cites it as this as this big grand thing. Inspirational story. Yeah, yeah, it's a horrible story. But the point is, um, once Heber was willing to give Joseph his wife, Heber is now complicit in polygamy. So Joseph then says, oh, "I don't want your wife." And then, depending on how you read the story, either Heber offers the, uh, his daughter to Joseph instead, or Joseph asks. I'm sorry. Excuse me. We don't know um, for sure what it is, but the point is, once you get someone complicit in polygamy uh then they as we talk about the no sin no accuser you're a lot less to a acu- lot less likely to accuse joseph once you're practicing it and so there's all of these different aspects of polygamy whether it's sex power um there's one account where he marries these two uh, i think it's a pair of sisters that have like a trust to them and there's a lot of controversy on that whether or not joseph was in charge of the money there's a lot of things going on and so there is more it's more than just sex but the fact is you know sex is at least an element because joseph could have avoided could have avoided sex with the women by using the law of adoption, which he was using elsewhere, if he was not doing this in part to have sex with young young women. Yeah, and also the fact that the church hid this from us for, for however long yeah. is just another example of why it's problematic. If yeah. it weren't problematic, they wouldn't have hid, for, hid it from exactly. us. They would have been proud of it and yep. taught it to us all yeah. uh, from, the, from, the, from the very beginning. 100%, yeah. yeah. And so... Uh, I talked about earlier, this this essay is really designed to protect Joseph Smith above all else. And so um, the essay says, these ceilings may also be explained by Joseph's reluctance to enter into plural marriage because of the sorrow it would bring to his wife, Emma. He may have believed that ceilings to married women would comply with the Lord's commandment without requiring him to have normal marriage relationships. This could explain why, according to Lorenzo Snow, the angel reprimanded Joseph for having demurred on plural plural marriage even after he had entered into the practice. After this rebuke, according to this interpretation, Joseph returned primarily to ceilings with single women. And so what's really interesting here is that the church wants to portray the Fanny Alger relationship as a marriage because it included sex. But then they turn around here to say Joseph avoided sex to save his wife, Emma, the sorrow polygamy would bring her. So the problem is Joseph Smith was already having sex with other women at the time. So I'm not sure how much more sorrow would be spared for Emma knowing he wasn't having sex with every single one of them. Like this is just, it's one of those word games that they play in these essays 
to try to keep you from really just looking at the most obvious conclusions here, which is that Joseph Smith um, was likely having sex with women and was using biblical uh, references to justify it later on. And we see this with a lot of other things he does. We talked about how he creates, you know, the priesthood out of necessity for authority, the first vision, all of these things are being created using uh, sources around him and, and religious texts like the Bible. And yet here we're kind of told, Oh no, you know, it's all in the up and up, but it's just, it's not is I don't know how to say it because there are Joseph Smith could have avoided this. And, and the last thing I'll point out there is, is they say in the essay, Joseph thought he could get around by just marrying already married women. He's a prophet of God. You think he could just say, Hey God, if I marry this already married woman, will this qualify? And God would be like, yeah, no. So that then completely waters down his ability as a prophet as well. Like they're like, Oh, Joseph Smith thought he could get around it by marrying 11 or I think nine of the first 11. And he didn't know. I mean, it's just, it makes Joseph Smith seem really powerless as a prophet as well. And if I could just check in here for a second, like, there, there are these times where we start out talking about any of these topics where I'm like, well, let's dig into it because there's a lot here. Yeah. Once you get into the weeds on this, there, there's always this moment, whether it's Book of Abraham or Polyandry, where I'm just like, I can't believe we're actually having this discussion. Yeah, like He's sleeping with 14-year-olds, other men's wives, and we're all trying to like analyze this weed here and this weed here too. But if you just zoom back out a little bit, this is just outrageous that we're even having this discussion at all. Um, but, yeah. but sometimes apologetics leads you to the weeds or the trees that, that, you know, in a way that, that makes you forget to look at the forest and the forest is that this is just awful. Even if it's just dynastic ceilings, women are just, again, being traded around like cattle their 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 value is diluted. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's no, just and, and it's fair. And I think one thing I'd point out is I I know we'll get to Helen Marr and oh my goodness, what's the other the other girl's name that was fourteen is like Mary Elizabeth Winchester, Leitner. Nancy Nancy Winchester I think. Oh, okay. And um, yeah. Yeah. so there's you know we the thing with the fourteen the two fourteen year old marriages is we don't know if Joseph slept with them, but at the same time under the the laws of DNC 132, not only was he, was he allowed to, but he was supposed to, to raise up seeds. So yeah, that's a mess, but yeah, we don't know that he, that he slept with him, but yeah, there's a, there, you read this sometimes. And, and when we get to the, like the proposals and the happiness letter, you're like, if you saw this and it was about anyone else, you'd be like, this guy is absolutely yeah. making it up. And yet we're sitting here, we're going to do right. five episodes on it because of the fact that the apologetics are so thick about it. So, and belief is so resilient and we've been conditioned to view Joseph as literally you know, the, the most righteous person next to Jesus. That was another powerful moment in my interview with Patrick Mason. He's like, I reject the teaching that Joseph Smith is the more righteous, is, is the most righteous person next to, to, to Jesus Christ. He said, I think mother Teresa was way more righteous than Joseph Smith. And yeah, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, I th yeah, we, yeah. you know, we go, we go through it all the time and, and, and we'll go through, we'll, we'll get, we got a lot more to go. And so not just with polygamy, but there's just so many instances that at some point it's just like, yeah, if this was anyone else, you, you would walk away a long time ago and, um, right. and, and, and belief is resilient. And so, um, another essay, another possibility that the church's essay gives for the polyandrous marriages was to say, Another possibility is that in an era when lifespans were shorter than they are today, faithful women felt an urgency to be sealed by priesthood authority. Several of these women were married either to non-Mormons or former Mormons, and more than one of the women later expressed unhappiness in their present marriages. Living in, living in a time when divorce was difficult to obtain, 
These women may have believed a ceiling to Joseph Smith would give them blessings they might not otherwise receive in the next life. And this paragraph is particularly problematic because the church is framing polyandry as if Joseph is somehow saving these women from bad situations. And the reality is that many of these women were married to faithful active members of the church. They kind of use these weasel words like more than one of the women later expressed unhappiness. Well, we have 11 polyandrous marriages. So how many is more than one? Is it two? Is it three? Um, and, and some of them were married to faithful members. And so um, only three of Joseph Smith's polyandrous wives were not married to members of the church. It means at least eight, you know, eight of the 11 were married to members of the church. And so some of these mem- women were married to leaders of the church, and one of them was married to an apostle that were sealed to Joseph Smith. So the church is kind of using these very vague terms to try to avoid the fact that Joseph Smith is marrying um, women who are already married to members of the church. And, and so, as we'll get into it in the next slide, this creates a lot of just huge problems um, that the church doesn't really have an answer. They really don't have an answer for today. If you ask them today, they'll just say it'll all work out in the end. They're, yeah. This is where it gets really bad. Well, let's go ahead and jump to that next slide. Yeah, so... If we are to believe the sealing power of Joseph Smith and the church, then Joseph Smith taking polyandrous wives creates massive problems for the eternities. Because Joseph Smith is marrying women that were already married to faithful members of the church, the kids of that woman and the first husband would then be sealed to Joseph Smith and not to their father. And so even if you work under the premise that Joseph wasn't having sex with these wives, he would still be taking the father's kids away for eternity and would then have the wife to populate planets with in the eternities. And so, um, I, like putting in my, my, where I'm at now. So I'm, I'm a member of record. I'm, I've been through the temple. I have the priest and all that stuff, but I am no longer a believer. And so under the church's doctrine, and we'll get into this as we go, cause this is, this is doctrine. This is not me making it up. Um, my, because I no longer believe in the church under the church's doctrine. My wife, who is still a believer is going to be paired up with another guy for the eternities. Now, if he gets sealed to her in the eternities, um, then my kid would technically under church doctrine be sealed to this other guy for eternity. And um, in the eternities, even if I stay married to my wife until we die and I remain a non-believer, she remains a believer under church doctrine, she would be given to another. That's the phrase. I'm not making this up. She'd be given to another man and then they would have eternal sex and she wouldn't really have a choice in it or she'd be destroyed. We'll get into that as well. And my kid would be sealed to this guy, no matter who he is, and taken away from me because I don't believe in the Mormon framing of God. And so this really hits home for me in a personal way, even though I'm not obviously participating in polyandry or polygamy. But the fact is, this hangs over my head because I have a family member of my wife who is a member of the church. And so this is something that holds over my head. And we talked about this at the beginning. The women can say, yeah, this won't impact me because we don't have to practice it. But the fact is, this is still doctrine for the eternities. And so these implications are real. And so in this case, going back to Joseph Smith's time, he is taking the wives of men who are faithfully believing in him as a prophet. And these men are going to lose their children for eternity um, to Joseph Smith. And then he is going to, because they'll talk about how in the essay, they talk about how the women live with the, with the husbands and they'll say they remain with their husbands. So maybe Joseph isn't having sex with them. We don't know. I mean, under the doctrine, he, he certainly is allowed to. And there's some references he had sex with at least one of them. But the reality is Joseph Smith is almost like earmarking these women saying, once you die, yeah. then for the attorneys, we will yeah. be having sex to populate plants. Like yeah. these implications are real. And that's why when you ask leaders of the church, they'll just say, we don't have all the answers. Yeah. It'll all work out in the end, except it's right there. This is what's supposed to happen. And I just, 
Yeah. It's horrifying. Yeah, and it, my, it bothers me on a personal level because of my yeah. situation. And to think of these people having to go through it in real time, I can't even imagine. Yeah. And, and if I can just kind of give my observer uh, comments, it's like whenever it's, whenever it's polygamy after Joseph Smith, there's zero question that sex was involved. Nobody right. asks, nobody's ever asked once that I'm aware of, did Brigham Young have sex with his 55 wives? Why wouldn't he have? Like all the polygamy after Joseph involves sex. So it should be suspicious, I think, to people to be saying, why is it that we're always like questioning whether sex was involved only when it's Joseph? And yeah. it's because number one, he's the founder. Number two, we're taught that he's the most righteous person is Jesus. And three, we know that he was denying it and hiding it and lying about it and that it was withheld from us. We all kind of somehow knew as Mormons growing up that Brigham was a polygamist, but somehow we never really knew about Joseph. And that's a problem of informed consent or deception. And, you know, that it should be clear to us why we keep trying to make sexual exceptions for Joseph Smith, especially in the case of polyandry. The yeah. only other point I'll make is kind of a confirmatory point. My, my late sister who passed away, who, by the way, lived in Chicago for much of her adult life. She married a non-member when she was inactive. And and then later she became super active and raised her kids in the church. Uh, she lived in uh, Lake Zurich and Cary areas up in the Northwest suburbs. But I was always sad by the fact that because her husband, he smoked, so he was never a member. She always looked at him as a temporary husband. And, that, and, and I even remember her telling me, you know, I'm kind of ready to go to the next life because, you know, I'm not going to divorce my husband because I love him and he's a good father to my kids, but he's not the man I'm going to end up with in heaven. And so yeah. she was almost ready to go to the next life to meet who her t eternal companion would be. And my, always, my, my thought always was, what a sad heaven that God makes where we're all told that this eternal family concept is so beautiful. But really what it's doing is it's basically making my my non-Mormon brother-in-law inferior and kind of lesser than, and then it's making my sister not really cling to him and view him as her one and only, but it's making her look forward to this future potentially fictitious man who, by the way, may be married to some other woman or sealed to some other woman within a Mormon context, because that's how it's going to work. There's going to be more for polygamy or, or celestial marriage to even exist in the afterlife. It's going to mean that there are more women in the celestial kingdom than men. And so more likely than not, my sister's going to be sealed to some man who she doesn't know who's, who's going to be already sealed to some other woman. And as you said, all of her children, if they remain faithful, which none of them have, by the way, if they were to have remained faithful, they're all going to be sealed to this other man that was never their dad. It's yeah. just so, and you don't need to comment on this. It's no. just, it's just problematic in all the ways. Yep. Yeah. And the last thing I pointed out, um, which you'd point out earlier is to me, there is, I, so you can't know this for sure, but I think the, the best reason that Joseph Smith would have started by marrying um, already married women, you had mentioned this earlier, is that if you were to get one of them pregnant, it would be very easy to say, like, oh, yeah, I'm having a kid. Congratulations. And I think... Does it, get the Joe, profit, you know, it does get the profit in trouble. Yeah. If there's a pregnancy. Joseph Smith safe. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, I, we'll get into this as we go. I don't really believe Joseph, Joseph had John C. Bennett performing abortions or anything. I, I don't really, there's no evidence for any of that. Um, but, you know, people back then were learning a little bit more about like the rhythm method and there were condoms and stuff. So I'm just saying like, it could have been that Joseph Smith started to get more comfortable with what he was doing that he kind of figured he, he knew how to not get when I don't know.
but that would make a lot more sense than just saying that he thought he was finding a loophole with God because that just makes no sense. So yeah. um, that was just confirming what you said earlier. But this is to me where things get really kind of like fascinating because um, I had no idea, you know, as a member how DNC 132 was produced. And so the Saints book kind of talks about it and they say on the morning of July 12th, this be 1843, William Clayton was in Joseph's office when the prophet and Hiram entered if you will write the revelation, Hiram told Joseph, I will take it and read it to Emma, and I believe I can convince her of its truth, and you will hear of, hereafter have peace. You do not know Emma as well as I do, Joseph said. That spring and summer, he had been sealed to additional women, including a few whom Emma had personally selected. Yet helping Joseph choose his wives had not made obeying the principle easy for Emma. The doctrine is so plain, Hiram said, I can convince any reasonable man or woman of its truth, purity, and heavenly origins. We will see, Joseph said. He asked William to take out paper and write as he spoke the word of the Lord. Much of the revelation was already known to Joseph. It described the new and everlasting covenant of eternal marriage, along with associated blessings and promises. It also revealed the terms governing plural marriage, which Joseph had learned while translating the Bible in 1831. The remainder of the revelation was new counsel for him and Emma addressing their questions and current struggles with plural marriage. If it's okay, Mike, I'm just going to give a, a quick reaction. Yeah. Number one, like... Again, this defies the idea that Joseph got the revelation in 1831. Like, two, it, it provides a more secular, boots-on-the-ground explanation. It's like, Emma's not down with this. Um, you know, so we got to... It, it provides a motivation for why finally it was revealed. And then third, it kind of implicates Hiram. Uh, and you always kind of think of Hiram as this kind of noble, loyal brother but the fact that he can make a statement like that, I can convince any reasonable man or woman of its truth, purity, and heavenly origin. I'm like, really? I think there's a lot of men and women out there who he would never be able to successfully convince. And I think that's demonstrated by the fact that Joseph didn't tell so many of, of his own leaders, including people like Sidney Rigdon or others. He was afraid to tell them because it, you know, so I think Hiram was naive and in many ways complicit. Those are some of the things that come to my mind. Yeah, no, I think he was naive. I mean, I, you know, like I said, if you read, I remember reading Saints, I think Saints talked about a little bit, and then there's other stories where they talk about all of these early members like Brigham Young and Hiram and how much they hated it, and then they cried, and then all of a sudden they had the confirmation from God that it was real, and then they were just gung-ho on it. And I just, I feel like, I, you know, the, a lot of these people were true believers in Joseph Smith. They believed he spoke for God, and so maybe that's why they felt so naive about their um, ability to convince others. But, yeah, it's, it's um. And, it, you know, in all honesty, it's probably a lot easier to convince a guy um, to do it than, than obviously a woman because, you know, it puts a lot more, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, you, we, you know, it, it's very beneficial for men as opposed to women. And so, um, you know, we've pointed this out a few times in this episode now. What happened in 1831 is completely different from what is happening in Nauvoo. Um, Joseph was taking about talking about taking the Lamanite women as, as wives or concubines to make their posterity white, delights them, and just. Um, that phrasing is based on the Book of Mormon which says that you could turn Native Americans whiter by bringing them to Christ. We talked all about that in the race and the scriptures and Mormonism episodes. And, you know, just as with the essay, there's a reason why saints is not explaining what that 1831 revelation was because it's based on some very controversial and now pretty much disavowed teachings and, you know, scientifically wrong teachings about skin color. Um, and then the other big entry is that saints doesn't tell the reader that at this point, Joseph Smith is already married to 20 other women with Emma being completely unaware of most of them. And then saints make sure to indicate that including a few whom Emma had personally selected. But what they don't tell you is that Emma had chose 
she chose four women for Joseph to marry. And of those four, two of them were a pair of sisters named Emily and Eliza Partridge that Joseph was already married to. And he had to have a secondary sham wedding um, in front of Emma so that she didn't know he had already married them behind her back. And so this is just another area. And obviously the saints book I did a long time ago um, for the first one, the chapter by chapter, but it's, it's a very um, distorted uh, view of history. And, and, and there's a lot of areas where the church is intentionally um, misleading with, with the history. And, and this is another case where they're using very careful wording so that if you came to them, they'd say, well, we weren't lying, but they're being, they're using words that are very misleading. If you know the history. And in this case, um, there's a lot of issues with how they frame the production of DNC 132 against the historical record. Okay. All right. And so this is where it gets cool to me. Um, so Hiram is going to ask Joseph to dictate the revelation. We know this. Um, the dictation process to me is just super fascinating. Given what we talked about way back when in the early episodes on um, the Book of Mormon cr- dictation. So William Clayton, uh, who recorded the revelation, wrote this uh, note about the process. He said, Hiram very urgently requested Joseph to write the revelation by means of the Urim and Thummim, but Joseph, in reply, said he did not need to, for he knew the revelation perfectly from beginning to end. So to be clear on this, Hiram is asking Joseph to use the peep slash shear stone that he used to translate the Book of Mormon with and that he used to get his early revelations, so that would be a direct revelation from God. But instead, Joseph Smith is telling him, no, I don't need it because I know it so perfectly from beginning to end. I think that is one of the most important aspects of this is that Joseph Smith, Hiram believes that Joseph can get words through the stone and Joseph is saying, I don't even need it. That's how well I know it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you make the point. I was going to, I was going to just ask, well, how many words is DNC 132? And that's on the next slide. (laughs) Yeah. And so this is why this is so important. So DNC 132 is over 3,200 words long. There is no way anyone could retain it and memorize a 3,200 word revelation in the way Joseph Smith claims to Hiram. By Joseph Smith's own claims, this is a revelation that Joseph was given years earlier that was never recorded. But as we mentioned in the Book of Mormon authorship overview, a typical scribe could legibly write about 1,200 words per hour. That means the dictation of the of DNC 132 was the same equivalent to an entire day of translating the Book of Mormon, and Joseph Smith was able to do it without any source material or the use of the seer stone. The dictation of DNC 132 is made in the language uh, the same, you know, in the voice of God. And in the language of the King James Bible, just as the Book of Mormon is, it also includes many of the similar phrases that occur in Joseph's other revelations, such as "I am the Lord thy God," "Behold, I am Alpha and Omega," etc. So it's not so much that the exact phrase is an overall style, but what I'm saying is, if you compare this to Joseph Smith's other kind of you know revelations that he wrote himself, it becomes pretty clear just how gifted Joseph was at being able to speak in a normal way versus being able to speak in the voice of God, and to be able to do it in a setting. Uh, where Joseph Smith is able to riff off 3,200 words off the cuff, I think really cuts against the idea that a lot of people have, which is that Joseph could not possibly have written the Book of Mormon himself. Because here, he's writing an entire day's worth of the Book of Mormon by just being asked by Hiram to do it, and he's doing it without the aid of anything else. Yeah, you're right. I think that's a great point. Yeah, I think that, to me, is one of the biggest takeaways of this whole thing. And so Fascinating. Yeah, and so, like I said... It might not seem like a big deal until you realize about the implications of Joseph Smith's abilities to write scripture in the name of God. Um, this was serious. This was one of those one of those aha moments for me when really doing the polygamy deep dive was just the ability that Joseph Smith had to be able to produce so much text in the voice of God, to do so much in, with biblical references, um, and to speak in that language. And you know, like I said, you know, apologists argue that Joseph was given the revelation so many times they knew it by heart. 
But the reality is DNC 132 contains references to issues with Emma that are happening right around the time DNC 132 is dictated. So you'd have to then argue that part of it was ancient, like 10 years old and part of it was brand new. And, and that just leads to a lot of problems. But as we have said earlier, we're going to have a whole episode on that. And so we're going to kind of stop this episode now because we're going to go right into DNC 132 on the next episode. I love it. Well, that's a nice little uh, Easter egg or surprise yeah. finish that we're not, you know, and that's why these episodes again are so important because they build on each other. Yep. And that's a fun, that's a fun sort of illustration of a concept that we've discussed earlier in terms of the Book of Mormon and its translation. Yeah. All right. So what's the closing slide? Yeah. So this is just going to be for those of you who've made it this far and are curious how we're going to split this up. So we're planning four more episodes on polygamy. Um, I think they're going to be in this order. They might switch a little bit, but we're going to have one episode that focuses on the text of DNC 132 and how that relates to how it was actually practiced. Uh, we're going to have an entire episode on Joseph Smith's proposals and kind of the patterns that emerge in those proposals to the women in the church. Uh, we're going to have an episode that's going to look at the happiness letter that Joseph Smith wrote to Nancy Rigdon. And then we're going to have a final episode that's going to look at polygamy after Joseph Smith along with the implications for how polygamy is today. And we're going to cover a lot more of apologetics in that episode. Um, the apologetics in that episode will kind of overarch all the other ones so that we can kind of cover all of that at the end so we can make sure we're getting everything in there. Yeah, not to poison the well, but as I'm trying to anticipate, we've we've covered DNC 132 with Sandra Tanner. Yep. Um, and uh, But there's always new stuff, and it's always worth learning multiple times just for memory's sake. Yeah. But the language in DNC 132 is so problematic. So that's going to be a great episode. Yeah, Joseph Smith's proposals and patterns, just how coercive uh, he was with with people yeah. is, is really disturbing. And then the happiness letter is for sure one of the most disturbing, twisted parts of the entire restoration as far as I'm concerned. Shout yeah. out, hat tip, hat tip to Jonathan Streeter for his yeah. his work on that. Yeah, and then post post Joseph Smith polygamy, I've got polygamy in my own family. My great my great grandparents were polygamists. My my grandma's parents, and I've discovered really disturbing things about that just in the past few weeks and months. So, Mike, yeah. it looks like we've got some good stuff coming up. Yeah, we got a lot to cover, and um, I think all four episodes after today will fit into this one. So they really will kind of build on each other. So hopefully, if you're if you're watching this, keep you know watch them in the order we do them, and I think. Um, like I said, it won't get easier, but it'll also, I think, help be us clarifying. all understand it a lot better. It'll so be it'll be good good in that way. All right, Mike. Thanks so much for what you do thanks. with LDS Discussions. Yep. Thanks, everybody. And uh, soon. everybody else, thanks so much for joining us today on Mormon Stories. Um, again, reminder that you can watch all of these episodes in an isolated series, either on Spotify, audio, or video, uh, on YouTube as a playlist, under the Mormon Stories podcast page, you can go to playlists or wherever you consume your podcast, you can just search the LDS Discussions podcast episode. We want to thank Mike and remind you all, you can go to LDSdiscussions.com for the essays that are well cited and you can read much of the source materials there. We want to thank everyone for their support. We hope you enjoy this series. Please give us feedback either as comments on YouTube or comments on the blog or comments wherever on Facebook, wherever you consume this, these episodes. If you like or don't like or have tips for how we can make this better, or if you find errors that you want to correct us on, we, we always uh, love and welcome 
learning that we've made a mistake and we'll do our best to own up on that. So thanks for your support. Your financial support makes all this possible. If you love this series, please become a monthly donor at mormonstories.org and we'll make this content available to future generations. I personally think this series with Mike and LDS discussions is is as important in different ways than CES Letter or Mormon Think or Letter from My Wife or, you know, lots of the other episodes, including Mormon Expression and Mormon Stories. So thanks, everyone. Take care. Be, be good to each other. Be kind to each other. And we'll see you all again soon on another episode of Mormon Stories Podcast. Take care.